This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, the third chapter, verses 6 through 10. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to each of us in love. Good morning. Well, as many of you know uh, that know me well, I'm a, <coughs> I'm a huge Survivor fan. And uh, it's almost embarrassing to say, but out of the 38 seasons, I have only missed one. So I have watched 37 seasons of Survivor. Now, you might be wondering, why would I do that? Why would I spend so much time? And there's many reasons. One is because they go to these exotic locations that are beautiful that I'll never get to go to. Uh, Second reason is I am very competitive, and Survivor is all about competition. But thirdly, and most importantly, uh, Survivor is all about relationships. And in particular, it's about how people can come together to overcome obstacles so that they can eventually win a million dollars and be the sole survivor. And so while in real life, we don't live on an exotic island and we don't have Jeff Propes here giving us rewards and immunity challenges, we are, as Ben Milner talked about last week, we're created for relationship. We were created for intimacy with our spouses, with our friends, our family, and our neighbors. But because of the fall, in order to achieve that intimacy, we, like the contestants on Survivor, we need to overcome obstacles. We need to overcome our pride. We need to overcome our selfishness our envy, our jealousy, our laziness, in order to connect more deeply with one another. And as I have sat with couples and men over the last 15 years in counseling, though selfishness and envy and jealousy and all those things are an obstacle in marriages, I think the greatest obstacle for all of us when it comes to connecting with one another is shame. So this morning, we're going to look at four things concerning shame. We're going to look at the definition of shame, the origin of shame, the impact of shame, and then the healing path for our shame. So let me pray for us. Father, I'm deeply concerned this morning that my words would be precise And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, come amongst us this morning and bring healing, bring hope for our marriages, for our friendships, 
from our relationships with family and neighbors. Shame is a huge obstacle for all of us. And so would you show up this morning in powerful ways to give us understanding and to bring healing. And we pray this in your name. So the first thing that I want us to consider this morning is the definition of shame. Now, there are two types of shame, and these often get confused. The first type of shame is what I would characterize good or healthy shame. It is direct result of a particular sin that leads you to repentance. Okay? So, for example... You know, when you were a student, I'm guilty of this, uh, I cheated on an exam and you fold up that little piece of paper and you stick it in your, you know, in your sleeve. And then when you're taking the exam, you pull out the piece, you unfold it, you start doing it, and then you're kind of cheating, right? I'm the only one that's done that. I can see by your faces. I am guilty of that. And you kind of look up to see if the teacher's looking and then you look down. And then all of a sudden you're looking at your cheat sheet and she sees you. And you immediately feel what? Shame. There's a sense of embarrassment. There's a sense of being seen. There's a sense of being caught that's directly tied to what? You're cheating. Now that type of shame, hopefully, then when she calls you up there, which she did with me, leads me and you to repentance. And we confess and we repent and we turn from whatever behavior that we were caught in. Now that type of shame is what I would say is healthy and good shame. But for our purposes this morning, there's another type of shame. And this morning we're talking about the shame that every one of us, this side of heaven, is born with. And that's not tied to any action. The shame that we're talking about this morning is a deep sense of worthlessness and powerlessness. It's a feeling in our souls that if people were to see who we really are, they wouldn't like us or accept us. Benet Brown is a well-known author and speaker about the subject of shame. She says the shame is the swampland of the soul. She goes on to say shame says you are not good enough, pretty enough, smart enough. Shame says, at our core, we are worthless. A person who feels guilty says, I'm sorry I did something wrong. A person struggling with shame says, I am sorry I am a mistake. Now, I had a client, and he gave me permission to share this with you uh, many years ago, one of my first clients. And if you looked at him, you would have thought he was just a beautiful guy. He was smart, he, he was intellectual, he was social, he married his college sweetheart, she was beautiful, and when I met them in seminary, all of us were like, oh, they're like Ken and Barbie. They were beautiful and very social and very interactive. He left seminary, he went on to get his PhD in nuclear physics from Duke University, and again, you thought, oh, they're, they're just kind of on this track of upward success. Everything's great. They're involved in church. But then when he came to see me, as we began to talk about his story, he very quickly said to me these words. Todd, everybody looks at me and thinks that I'm okay. Everybody looks at me and thinks I'm a success. And he didn't mean that out of pride. 
But deep down, I feel like a piece of crap. Deep down, I feel like I'm worthless. Deep down, I feel like I have no value. That is shame. Shame is the inner voice that whispers to us and says to us, at our core, we are defective. Shame tells us that God was in a hurry when he created us and therefore did not give us everything we need to be the man or woman that he has called us to be. So there's two types of shame. Shame that's connected to an action that is sinful, that leads to repentance. We're not talking about that type of shame. We're talking about the second type of shame, which is a feeling deep down inside of us that we are powerless and worthless. So now that we've looked at the definition of shame, let's secondly look at the origins of shame. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read that God created the heavens, the earth, and they were all good. And he created man in his likeness, and he called man to come. He created Eve, as Ben talked about so eloquently last week, as a helpmate, a life companion. And everything was good, and there was perfect intimacy. They were naked and felt no shame. They could interact with each other and with God. Everything was great. There was no feelings of worthlessness, no feelings of powerlessness, no feelings of being defective. But then in Genesis 3, we're introduced to a new character in this great story. Satan enters the garden. And what does he do? He goes up to Adam and Eve and he tempts them and he tries to entice them into eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The only tree that God forbid them not to eat from in the entire garden. And they disobey God and they ate. And the author of Genesis paints a picture of what happens next. He writes, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, sin enters our world. But not only does sin enter our world, shame enters our world. Both types of shame enter our world. You see, Adam and Eve, they had disobeyed. They had cheated. They had done something wrong. And for the first time, because of their disobedience, they felt shame. They were embarrassed by it. And therefore, they hid from God. But the second type of shame also entered the world. Because the text tells us that they were naked. And they covered themselves with fig leaves. 
to try to hide themselves. Now, their nakedness had nothing to do with their disobedience. It wasn't a sexual sin. What is the author trying to teach us here? He's trying to teach us that when they sinned, shame entered our world. For the first time, they literally felt defective and they wanted to hide from each other and from God. And just as every creature after Adam and Eve inherited their sin, every creature, meaning every one of us in this room, has inherited a sense of shame from Adam and Eve. None of us, this side of heaven, are immune from the disease of sin and shame. We are all born with a proclivity toward disobedience, and we are all born with a question of whether or not we have worth and value. And just as nurture affects our proclivity to sin, nurture also affects our shame. Each of our story contains a cast of different characters. And two primary characters in each of our stories are our parents, our mom and our dad. And our mom and dads are given to us as an image of God's unconditional love with the hope that a secure attachment can form and speak to our question of whether or not we have value and worth and tell us that we do. But for many of us, because our moms and dads and brothers and siblings and teachers also struggle with sin and shame, A secure attachment never occurs. And that question, that seed of shame is still in us. And we take that question out into the world. And depending on who we interact with, some people water that shame so it grows. And our sense of powerlessness and defectiveness grows. While some of us are fortunate enough to have people and caregivers and others who speak to that shame. And that shame dissipates. Now, I'm the youngest of three boys. And uh, when I was born, my parents told me that my brothers fought over me. They wanted to hold me. And my parents, I I didn't know this at the time, were going through some financial um, stress. And so there was an underlying sense in the family of stress And particularly for my dad, all I kind of would get from my dad was either anger or nothing. He was either completely emotionally shut down or he was angry. Now, for a little boy, I'm not going to think, oh, that's my dad's issue. That's his problem. No, what a little boy does is he thinks there's something wrong with me that's making my dad angry or that's making my dad shut down. And so for me, there was an insecure attachment going on there. And that question of, am I defective? The answer was, yes, there's something wrong with you. Well, then you kind of move forward. And my brothers were also in that same environment. And so what did they do? They began to pick on me because I was the easiest. I was the youngest. And they would do something that seemed so innocent They would tell me that I was adopted. My brothers Keith, Kevin, and Todd. So which doesn't belong? 
the T, the Todd, right? I had blonde hair, they had brown hair and red hair. And so they would tell me I was adopted. Now, initially I would try to play it off, but then if you heard it again and again and again, what happened was I began to believe it and think even more so that I'm defective. There's something wrong. I don't belong in this family. Well, then you kind of fast forward and I'm in sixth grade and I'm playing football and I'm with my buddies and everything's good and then I break my foot. And then all of a sudden I'm on the sidelines watching all my friends play football. And what message comes to my heart and mind? There's something wrong with you. You're defective. You don't belong. And then you fast forward to eighth grade and I'm going to a sock op with one of the girls that I had a crush on and liked her a lot. And we go to this sock op, which is a dance for those of you. Uh, and you don't wear shoes. It's called sock op. And we're at this dance and some things happened at the dance. I won't go into the details. Anyway, after the dance, the next day, she wasn't trying to be cruel, but she began to tell her friends some things about our interaction at the sock op. Now, I played it off. As if it didn't hurt me at all. But I was talking to my supervisor in the counseling program later about that. And she said, you know, Todd, you were already in the coffin. And when that girl began to share certain things about you, she slammed the coffin and you were dead. And it was true. At that point in eighth grade, you wouldn't have known it. I had tons of friends, but I knew that there was something wrong with me, that I was defective. That is what shame does. We're all born with it, and our parents have the potential and the power to speak to it, but oftentimes they don't. And then we walk through life, and different events water it, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. So now that we've looked at the definition of shame, and we've looked at the origins of shame, Let's thirdly look at the impact of shame. Shame is like a cancer that, that not only eats away at our own souls, it also impacts our willingness and ability to connect with God and with one another. As we look back at Genesis 3, what do we see? There's a key word, and that word is hid. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God, instead of running toward him, like they had previously done every time he entered the garden, they ran away from him. Instead of moving toward him to connect with him as they were created to do, they chose to disconnect from him. They hid from God. And at its core, and this is the insidiousness of shame, at its core, it causes us to retreat from the very connection and intimacy that we were created for with God and with one another. Shame says, I am so defective that if others really saw me, they would reject me. So in order to protect myself, I need to move away from them. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I'm married. Or I have plenty of great friends, so I must not be struggling with shame. And while that might be true for, for some of you, you aren't struggling with shame. You had secure attachment and that shame doesn't exist or doesn't exist strongly in you. For many of us, 
and Ben talked about it this week, we're married by the grace of God and hormones that allowed us to kind of push through that shame and that sexual desire brought us together with our husband or with our wives. Or the loneliness was so great that we surrounded ourselves with friends and they were all around us, but they didn't really even know us deeply. But what happens is in friendship and in marriage, after the honeymoon period is over, that question of I'm defective and and that feeling of worthlessness kind of rises up in us. And so when our spouse is trying to move toward us emotionally and see us and connect to us, we shut our emotions down because we don't want to feel those feelings of worthlessness and defectiveness. And if you don't want to feel those and you can't feel happiness or sadness or other things, and so you just shut down. And so our spouse is trying to move toward us and they're getting nothing. And we know that. And they're disappointed in us, but they continue to try to move toward us. And then we, we get into a dance that I can't talk about today, but if you come to the marriage seminar this week and next week, you'll hear about that. But that shame is in us. And then what happens in a marriage? When, when you have that shame, you feel worthless and you're married to someone, what do you do? You feel lonely. And you need to medicate the shame. And so what do you begin to do? You begin to work. We, we guys, we know this well. You get busy and you work and you work and you work. Because that takes away the shame for a moment. Or maybe you turn to food. Because when you feel food, you don't feel that sense of worthlessness quite as much. Or that sense of powerlessness. So you eat and you eat and you eat. Or you turn to pornography. Because certainly in that place... You don't feel that sense of worthlessness and defectiveness. Someone's telling you that they want you and that you're wonderful and that you're beautiful. And you go to all these different things. It could be vacations. It can be money. It could be success. All those things to try to deal with your shame. And for a moment, you feel relief. And then all of a sudden, after that relief is gone, you move to despair And then after the despair is gone, you move right back to shame. Welcome to the addictive cycle that we in America are are deeply prone to move into. And that's how shame continues to move. And all the while, instead of moving toward others, we retreat from others. So, We've looked at the definition of shame. We've looked at the origins of shame. We've looked at the impact of shame. Y'all are all thoroughly depressed. Now we're going to look at the healing path of shame. Benet Brown, who is the author that I quoted earlier, she speaks of this. And she says the key to overcoming shame is vulnerability. And while I agree that vulnerability is key to overcoming shame... I believe it's simply the start of the healing process. Shame begins to heal as we bravely choose to sit in our shame with another human being. And God shows up. And we not only hear the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ in our head, 
we allow that truth to move to our hearts. One of the most beautiful pictures of healing of shame is in Mark 5. Jesus has crossed the lake and he and his disciples get out of the boat and they're, they're entering the city and Jairus comes up to him and falls it on his knees and says, Jesus, you need to come with me to heal my daughter. And Jesus agrees to go with Jairus. And so they begin to kind of march through the city and there's crowds all around them. And there's a bleeding woman who at no fault of her own has this disease. And as a result of that, she spent all her money to try to to gain healing of this physical disease. But not only is it a physical disease, because she's bleeding, she's also an outcast. She's been rejected by her mom and dad. She had a question of, am I worthy? Am I valuable? And their answer was no. And then the community rejected her. And so she had these deep feelings of shame that also went along with this physical disease. But then she heard, Jesus is in town. Maybe if I can just touch the hem of his garment, he will heal me. Because I'm certainly not worthy of actually going up and talking to him. And so she pushes through the crowd, and as she pushes through the crowd, she touches the hem of his garment, and she is immediately healed. And then what does she do? She jumps up and down, she screams, I'm healed, I'm healed. No. Because her shame wasn't healed, she just begins to back up and hide and isolate and move away. But what does Jesus do? This is what I love about our Savior. Is he knows that the power's gone out from him. He knows that this woman's been healed, but he also knows that she's an outcast. He knows that she thinks that she's worthless and doesn't have value. And so what does he do? He stops everybody and he says, somebody touch me. And the disciples in their arrogance laugh and say, you know, you're, you're an idiot. Of course, there's everybody's touching you. Jesus, why are you asking that? And he dismisses them and says, no, somebody touched me. And in that moment, that woman knew that he was talking about her. And I believe with her head down in fear that everyone was going to shout at her and be mean to her, and even that Jesus would potentially reject her, she walks up, and I believe with her head down, she goes before him. And what does he say to her? What's the first word that he says to her? He says, daughter. He says, daughter. He says, you are my beloved daughter. You belong to me. You have worth and value. Regardless of what anybody else says, you are my daughter. And I believe he probably gently lifted her head And it doesn't say this in the Bible, but I believe he said, I love you. I care about you. Your faith has healed you. You are no longer powerless. You have the power of Christ in you. Now go. He restores her physically, but he also 
heals her shame. And if we are going to have our shame healed, we need to be courageous enough to be vulnerable with our spouses, with our friends, with counselors, and to be honest with them about how we really feel deep down inside of us. And for some of us, that's very difficult because emotionally we're shut down. And so you're going to need some help as you talk through your story. You're going to need some help naming the different wounds that came your way and the different messages that you began to believe. But as you begin to do that, as you begin to walk in vulnerability and share your story, and you have a spouse or a counselor or a pastor or a friend who then meets you and loves you and speaks the truth of your value, your worth, that you are his beloved, then that shame dissipates. That shame is healed. So the question for all of us today is are you, are we willing to risk being vulnerable with your stories so that you might offer your shame to another so that they might be Jesus' hands and feet and voice to speak to your shame and bring healing and restoration. This is not easy. I've been sitting with men and couples for 16 years. And there's not a a man or a couple that I've sat with that, that shame was not the core issue that was hurting their marriage, that was hurting their relationships. And it takes time, it takes trust for them to move to that place where they're vulnerable enough and risk letting you know how they really feel or even coming alive enough to let you know. And then what a privilege. It is holy ground. People ask me all the time, why do I do this counseling? Because it is holy ground when you get the opportunity to sit with somebody in that place and be, as Henry Nowen talks about, to be the father to them. To wrap your arms around them and to tell them that they are loved and they are accepted. Now Ben talked last week that your wife or your husband can be that person And for many of you, potentially that is the case. But for some of you, because in your shame and your sin, you've hurt your spouse so much over these years. It's a struggle for them to actually be the first ones to speak to your shame. To tell you that you have value, to tell you that you have worth because everything in them wants to beat you up. Or everything in them wants to smack you. And so, for some of us, We're going to need to look outside of our marriage and go and see a counselor who will speak and love and care for you. Because it's easier for me to do that with my clients because I haven't been wounded by them. I haven't been hurt by them. I can just be the unconditional love of God to them. So for some of us, we need to go to a counselor or a pastor. But I would say a word of caution What I'm saying here is just don't go out to anyone to share your shame. 
Because I've done that. I've actually gone to a counselor once, and I remember him just looking at me and saying, you're lonely, you just need to get married. And I was like, that's not very helpful. And I feel defective already, and that makes me feel even more defective. You know, so you need to choose wisely and, and choose a counselor or a pastor or a friend that you trust who has experienced their own healing and they've experienced the Father's voice in their lives and their hearts and then let them move toward you. You know, Jesus is the resurrection. Eighth grade, I was in a coffin, and I was dead. Ninth grade, I went to Young Life and began to hear the good news of the gospel. And a man by the name of Steve Kimmel decided to pursue me and love me. And a family by the name of the Knoxes decided to invite me into their family. And unbeknownst to me at that time, but I can look back, God began to heal the shame and answer the question inside of me of, Do I have value? Do I have worth? And then the summer before my sophomore year, God captured my heart. And Christ came into my heart. And for the first time, I not only heard the truth of the gospel, I experienced the truth of the gospel. And my life was radically changed. But shame's powerful. I wish I could say in that moment, all my shame went away and I was healed. No, it's taken, well, it's still a process, but it's been about 30 years of healing. And God gave me a roommate by the name of Tim Edmiston, who loved me for four years and continued to speak to my shame. And then he took me on to InterVarsity staff and surrounded me by people who understood the gospel, who continued to speak to my shame. And then I went to see a counselor and a counselor and another counselor. And then in seminary, God's like, okay, we're going to do some serious work about your shame. And he brought Gary into my life. Who spoke the truth and who was the father to me. Jesus is in the resurrection business. And so the good news, though all of us are born with sin and shame, through Christ's blood, our sin is forgiven And through Christ's adoption of us, our shame is healed and continues to be healed for some of us who have been so deeply wounded like myself. And so my hope is, when we started Hope Chapel, that we would be a church where people like myself, who came in struggling with sin and shame, that this would be a safe place. To come, to be loved, to be accepted, to be met by the truth of the gospel incarnate in the body of Christ. And I'm thankful that I've experienced healing through this body. And my hope is that you'll risk enough in this body so that you too might experience healing. And that you too will become a healer. In your relationship with your husband, your wife, your children, your friends, and your neighbors. Amen.